Hello, all, and thank you for playing Plot Devices, a movie and film podcast. Mm, kind of. We'll be providing the latest, most interesting movie updates and also inform you on what to spend your next week watching. Uh, the voice you hear now is me. I'm Noah, and I'm joined here with two members of the Popcorn Club, and here's how they sound. What's up, everyone? This is Sam. Hey, I'm Brandon. I have a beard. I don't know if you can see this because I don't know if we're doing video. Not yet. Not yet. You'll, you'll be immune to our beautiful slash in-beautiful faces. It's for you to decide. I'm not here to judge. All right, Brandon, why don't you go ahead and tell us about the things that are going on in the movie industry? Yeah, let's uh, let's get started. So as we know, in the world of theatrical releases, it's a bit of a cluster at the moment because there's, you know, a pandemic going on. And a lot of theatrical deals with studios have been, you know, either falling through the roof or getting, you know, direct streaming. Now, AMC and Warner Brothers have made a new amendment to that deal. In a new report from Collider, Warner Brothers has struck a deal with AMC Theaters that will see the studio respect an exclusive 45-day theatrical window in 2022, following its day-and-date experiment in 2021. For those of you who were unaware, basically all of the major Warner Brothers releases were going straight to HBO Max, as well as in theaters for this year. Uh, Beginning next year, they will start to do a 45-day release window. This has been, this is now halfway of the traditional 90-day short window that studios have been trying to chop down for a while. Now, Warner Brothers and AMC have come to at least some sort of agreement. There has been no word on if other chains like Regal or Harkins or Cinemark, if they have agreed to this as well. But we know that AMC has as well. Uh, and in a, uh, in a shareholders conference with uh, Adam Aaron, the, uh, one of the uh, heads over at AMC, he talked about saying, we are especially pleased that Warner Brothers has moved away from day and date, and exclusive windows is an important way to build because successful franchises. Uh, there's a couple other details buried in this report as well about uh, just specifically, you know, some of the big releases that will still be coming to sort of the mixed hybrid release. You know, we have Dune, we have Malignant, uh, a couple other big projects coming out this year for HBO Max and theaters simultaneously. AMC is also beginning to start admitting for Bitcoin, which is currently valued at around $40,000, building itself into the mainstream market a little bit. And uh, last but not least, uh, drive-in theaters, which were kind of an experiment for AMC going forward in the pandemic. Not so much anymore. uh, Noah, let's get your thoughts first. Where do you see this deal going compared to some of the other, uh, between like the universal deal we saw in the pandemic, the whole Disney premiere access, where do you see this going? Yeah, when it came to uh, the winners of the streaming platforms, HBO Max was definitely leading the charge with that same-day release, uh, same-day availability on the streaming platform uh, as it is in theaters. When Disney Plus started adopting that premiere access for only some of its releases, it was very surprising and shocking because you have all these people um, only reliant on the streaming platforms to get their new media throughout the pandemic and for them to now be blocked by a, a price point that for some is too much, um, for others it's reasonable. And accessibility with HBO Max having same-day releases was just a pipe dream and something that I wish we could have kept uh, as this um, as the risk of returning to theaters you know, isn't completely minimized and it might even increase again. And so... Uh, this is a hit to those who want to just enjoy movies at home. So I feel unsurprised by it. Um, but, you know, movie business is movie business. Yeah. And honestly, Noah covered a majority of what I was thinking too. But what I also wanted to tap into was the accessibility, similar to what Noah was saying. It was really nice for someone who wasn't really comfortable going to theaters at first to have that same day release. I think it gave all of us that flexibility, which really 
I enjoyed. And I think that it also brought a lot of accessibility for other people who might have like sensory issues, maybe people who, you know, it's hard to get children to theaters because for whatever reason or another, and maybe for some people there might be some physical um, obstacles that might block people from being able to go to movies and enjoy them as well. So I just feel like, you know, even more than COVID for people who might have accessibility issues in the past before COVID, it's given them that outlet to enjoy movies the same day as other people. So, you know, I, that's something that I'd be personally sad to see if that were, you know, to eventually go away, but maybe that means that creators and producers will have to doctor better contracts for these stars. Cause especially if the, the, you know, if the cast and crew were promised X amount of money, then then they should live up to that promise. Because if I were them, it's like, yeah, I would want to get the money that I'm expected to be paid with. Um, granted, these stars probably don't need too much money. But the point is, is, you know, you, you're expected to have what you were promised. And I feel like that that, you know, that just means that maybe they have to draft it better and prepare better for same day releases if this is something they plan on doing and continuing. Yeah, totally. I will definitely add to your point about accessibility. Like I know plenty of people who, you know, are not theater heads like we are, who are not, you know, drawn to the theatrical experience and, you know, to each their own. And that day and day release has added to a lot of things. Like even for myself, like I wasn't going to go see Space Jam 2 in theaters. I just didn't want to, but I was able to see it at home on my HBO Max and it was super convenient. And I like the idea of accessibility. I like the idea of, like you said, for, you know, visually and auditory impaired audiences, let's get captioning in theater peoples. Why aren't we doing this? Um, but I will say that I'm glad that I'm glad to see that one of the big three is still making lucrative deals with studios, because I think a lot of us, when that initial universal deal came in early in the pandemic, I think a lot of us went, oh, is this, you know, the start of the end of theaters and, you know, doomsday prepping and all of this and I kind of felt like, no, that's not where this is going. But I was worried that it was going to lead to, you know, every studio having a streaming service and it was going to be a pipe dream for that. And that's where it was going. This looks to be like, no, the theatrical experience is coming back in some way, shape or form. I wish it was more than 45 days. I understand why it is, especially with how big HBO Max is becoming in the streaming wars. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that later on down the line. Uh, but no, th this to me is a good thing. I will say just as far as the cryptocurrency thing, I don't know. Uh, it's $40,000 at this point, unless you're renting out a theater. I don't know how worth that is. But you know what? I, if cryptocurrency is becoming a thing, I don't understand it. So teach their own. And to Sam's point about um, parents bringing their babies to theaters, keep those babies at home. That's all I want to add. <laughs> In anything other than, you know, G-rated or maybe PG movies, I agree with you. But don't bring your baby to an R-rated movie, please. There's also always that inopportune time when children will say something and it always makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> I, I will never forget. Uh, sorry, this is just a quick tangent. I will never forget going to Avengers Endgame on like my third screening. And there were like two like five-year-olds in the audience with their mom. And <laughs> Captain Marvel pops up on screen. And they just go, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> See, exactly. Things like that. <laughs> You get you get the kid who's watching. Uh, let's say it's even Endgame. You get them coming in uh, for their second screening, and it's like your it's your third, so you don't mind spoilers. But they're immediately like, "Oh, but they all come back, right? Like they all come back." And then you're like, "Oh god!" <laughs> um, so keep the babies at home. Keep the babies. 
Anyways, let's move on to another lucrative deal in the world of the uh, well, film and series, so to speak. Uh, specifically, 14 more South Park movies, because uh, that's happening. There was a recent article in Bloomberg that basically broke down the uh, Matt Stone, Trey Parker, South Park deal. Uh, recently, Viacom made a deal with the uh, South Park creators who have been working on this since the late 90s. $900 million to make at least six additional seasons and 14 movies set in the South Park world. Uh, set against their licensing deal currently with HBO Max, which is not currently set to expire, but may expire with this Paramount Plus deal that's coming up. And as Sam had mentioned to me earlier, this does not take into account the production costs of every episode. This is really more of a billion-dollar deal for the South Park creators. And in this Bloomberg report, they talked a little bit about their uh, their relationship with Paramount and Viacom and how it's been really rewarding and what the difference is between, you know, going for a theatrical release, which is the other thing. These are not necessarily going to be just, you know, hour-long specials. Bigger, longer, and uncut fans, you are getting another theatrical movie at some point. It may be the one that's coming next year. It may be the one that's coming years from now. You have many options, as is their words. Um, And, yeah, they kind of were talking about the industry of streaming as it is. They were talking about not wanting to expand into, you know, spinoffs and, you know, web series. They weren't really, they want to sort of stick with the South Park stuff that they are familiar with. They've been talking about things like cancel culture and, you know, celebrity culture and things that they've always been talking about, but that have been, you know, more in the news recently. And so I want to get your guys' take on this. And Sam, I want to start with you. Uh, I know we're all varying degrees of South Park fans. Uh, where do you see this property going with this kind of expansive deal for something like Paramount Plus that admittedly is not the biggest streaming service at the moment? Yeah, so I'm I'm right there with you. It, it, you know, I'm I'm actually a consumer for arguably the the largest uh, streamers that are out there. So that would include Netflix, Hulu, uh, HBO Max, and Amazon Prime. And so I I was never really attracted to Paramount Plus, even though yes, there's tons of SpongeBob, and yes, there's the new iCarly. But I just for me, it hasn't warranted uh, the the reason to subscribe to them. And so for South Park, does that give me a reason to subscribe to it? Unfortunately, no again, because I was never a huge fan of South Park, you know, and I know that I, I'll probably get poo-pooed for this. I'm sure somebody out there listening is a huge South Park fan. And honestly, that's that's great. That's good because we're all fans of something. So I am very happy for fans of South Park. That's just going to be amazing because you're getting all sorts of different new um, new shows as well as movies because I want to know what warrants the difference between a movie story and a TV storyline because usually South Park, like a lot of adult um, uh, cartoons, always touch on what's currently happening in the world. So I'm very curious to know what that content is going to look like. Um, and so, you know, I think either way, it's it's very exciting whether you're a fan or not. Sam, I am right there with you on the bench, just not playing the South Park game because, uh, truth be told, when lines were drawn for me and my household, I was a family guy consumer. Other people were South Park consumers. Other people were Simpsons consumers. Like there was always, um, nobody was watching, uh, Futurama. Okay. Well, <laughs> when it comes to South Park, I think that, uh, I totally respect the series. I mean, it's been going on since the late nineties. So how can you not like tip your hat to a show that has, um, secured an audience and secured a following for decades now? Um, as you mentioned, the $1 million deal, my eyes just widened because, I cannot believe like a deal like that exists where you can 
where these creators have promised how many seasons and 14 movies? Uh, at least six extra yeah. seasons and 14 movies. And it's also 1 billion. 1 billion. What did I say? 1 million? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's what the, did uh, I say? <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to say that. It's a Dr. Evil comparison of 1 billion. <laughs> I'm just thinking the yeah the one million dollars. <laughs> I I stand corrected. It is not one million dollar deal. It is a one billion dollar Doctor Evil deal, and that comes with six new seasons, fourteen new movies. I am only interested in seeing what that movie content is going to be like. I know what the show is. I know what the show makes fun of, and I know how those episodes are are carried out. I mean, they're like twenty minutes. Usually, like, they're just so absurd, um, hilarious, kind of like. But when it gets to the movies, I've, I have not seen a South Park. I mean, I, I want to say I've caught bits and pieces of uh, the movie that you mentioned. I'm going to butcher the title, but something uncut. And then... Bigger, uh, longer, uncut. Bigger, longer, uncut. Um, I know I'm a gamer, so I see, like, the gaming South Park title pop up every now and then. But when it comes to the movies, uh, I want to see what kind of original content these creators can come up with because I know that they're amazing. Uh, when I was, I was an intern over at um, ASU Scamage Theater, and when I was working there, I got the opportunity to see The Book of Mormon, and I completely fell in love with that show. I loved the comedy, and I love musical theater. I love the way they did musical theater. And so to find out that the creators of South Park were actually behind that show um, made me almost revisit the show. And I say almost because, again, like, it's just uh, me and the show just aren't on the same wavelength, and I'm just not always there for it. Um, but kudos to them kudos to the creators this is an amazing deal um and it's a heavy one so when you think about the streaming platforms uh it seems that lines are starting to get drawn on who has exclusive exclusivity to what type of content so for south park to go to paramount plus um it is a big move but i don't think it's a big enough move for paramount plus to be a large enough contender yes they have icarly yes they have camp coral where you can see um an alternate animation of our SpongeBob favorites, uh, which I have given a shot at. And um, I can't say that I'm completely drawn in yet, but I'm only about like two episodes in. Uh, and then I believe we're getting a Patrick show soon. We, but I we got it. It premiered. It premiered. Okay. Yeah. But I digress. All I want to say is this is a big move for Paramount+. Plus. Is it a large enough contender now to go up against like the HBO Max subscriptions or the Netflix subscriptions? I don't think so. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try and be quick about this just because you, you two already went over a lot of the points that I was going to make. Um, I am a moderate South Park fan. I had a, you know, phase late middle school, early high school where I thought it was, you know, one of the pinnacles of comedy. And, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I, and yeah, I am a fan of bigger, longer uncut. I thought that movie was kind of genius for distilling the South Park formula into what it could be in a theatrical experience. Um, and it made money. So like you have precedents there for being like, this can work in theaters. Granted, theaters are very different now than they are, you know, 20 years ago, but still, it, it is there. Um, and I will say about the exclusivity thing, like, Trey and Matt are not exclusively signed to Viacom. Like, they can still do stuff with this HBO Max deal if they really wanted to, or they can go to... And I, But obviously, South Park itself is the IP that is drawing fans in. I can't see this being worth a billion dollars. I I know South Park, you know, has become grander and more effects-heavy as the seasons have gone on. It is not worth a billion dollars with production costs. I don't know how that works. But you know what? If 
they're going to get the resources to do that. If they're going with these, you know, deep fake ideas that, you know, they're talking about, like, good for them. And if they get the product, if they get the money to hopefully produce things that they believe in from up and coming creators to maybe bring to Paramount Plus, then I think that's only a good thing for artists in the long run who are looking for another avenue with that, especially for Paramount Plus, which helps them in the long run. Uh, we have another Paramount story that we're going to be talking about like very soon. Uh, but I think this is a really cool idea. I think it's a bit too absurd of an idea, but I think for fans, this is going to be really cool in the long run. All right. All right. We've known, or I'm sorry, let me start again. All right. All right. We've heard what we need to hear about South Park. Brandon, we've got another Paramount Plus story. Can you tell me about it? It's not a Paramount Plus. It's actually Netflix, but it is Paramount related. So it's, it kind of, it's, it's Marvel. Every Somehow Howard the Duck is connected to Pepper Potts. There's, is DC, yeah, DC's in here. He's in the room. Um, I've personified DC as a male figure and he just walked in. He's involved too. Um, this Netflix story, why don't you introduce it? So for some time now, we've known that Netflix is working on their live action adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender, a show that I am sure that all of us deeply love and have an affinity for. And if there are any thoughts on this that we're going to get into. Uh, there was a report going out earlier last week that there was a confirmed cast that was not locked down yet. Now Netflix has made the official press announcement regarding their live action casting. We have, in the role of Aang, we have Gordon Cormier from uh, Gabby Duran and the Uncitables. We have Quintillo from the um, Canadian indie drama Beans. We have Ian Usley from uh, Physical as well as uh, as well as 13 Reasons Why. And we have Dallas Liu, also from uh, Pen15 and a couple of other things as well. Uh, Albert Kim, also known as one of the head writers on Sleepy Hollow and Nikita, has been confirmed as the showrunner alongside executive producers Dan Lin from The Lego Movie and uh, Lindsay Liberator, uh, I should say, from uh, Walker Executive Producing. Uh, Roseanne Ling will executive produce, as well as uh, Jabbar Riz- uh, as well. <laughs> Sorry, let me say that one more time. Uh, Roseanne Ling and Jabbar Rosani have also been confirmed as directors. The show does not have a currently set release date, but it is expected sometime either late next year or early 2023. At the same time, we also do have Paramount Plus, which is working with original series creators Michael DiMartino and Brandon Conietzo, who unceremoniously departed on Netflix somewhat on bad terms. You can do the research on that. I'm not going to go into it. But they are working on Avatar-related projects on Paramount Plus as well. So there are conflicting Avatar projects in the works, but this is the one that we have definitive information on today. Uh, Sam, I want to start with you. Uh, I know that none of us are super familiar with this new cast's work, but just on the basis of, you know, where they're coming from, you know, their, the seeming approach to it, the, the people they do have attached to it. Where do you see this Netflix adaptation going as of right now? For me personally, I'm excited about the cast because I don't mean to speak like for all Asian Americans out there, but for me as an, uh, who identifies as an Asian American, it's, I think it's amazing to see that, you know, like all the, the, the lead cast members are of some kind of Asian descent, you know, because as we know that infamous M. Night Shyamalan movie, um, the one that I'm sure he wishes he could forget about, uh, a lot of the, those leads, if not all of them were not of Asian descent. And so it's just very, it's very refreshing. And what's the word I'm trying to think of? It's reassuring. It's reassuring that the lead cast is of that kind of descent because Avatar really does come from these countries, you know, like Avatar is based in this world that has a lot of heavy Asian influence. And so it just feels proper to do that. But I'm excited to see where this content goes. I'm hopeful, not just because of the cast, but because of just something new with Avatar, because I feel like that world could be explored 
so much more than how it's been explored in Legend of Korra and in Avatar's original series. I mean, we even have all sorts of different comics that are out on a two graphic novels for the, you know, Aang and, and his friends' adventures. So there's a whole bunch of content out there that could be at, like adapted. And so I'm curious to see how this Netflix adaptation will take any of those stories, if it will, and, and spin it in their own way. But I am also very excited about Paramount Plus's uh, shows where Michael DiMartino is working with them because, yeah, like you said, there was all sorts of drama earlier. And I was so disappointed when I found out that he left the project that was originally going to be with Netflix because it wasn't fulfilling what his vision was and it wasn't fulfilling what his vision was for Avatar. So, you know, that that's that's something that I'm excited about. And maybe just maybe that'll get me to subscribe to Paramount Plus. That would probably tip the scales for me. <laughs> I think Paramount Plus is expecting anything to, to get them subscriptions right now, but ne- neither here nor there. Thank you, Sam, for bringing up the infamous M. Night Shyamalan rendition of uh, live-action Last Airbender. Um, I was surprised, Brandon, in your fabulous introduction that you did not mention it. Um, but now that it's a topic of conversation, let's just talk about um, what we hope to get away from with this new live-action. Uh, it's a shame that the, the original creators have stepped out of the production, um, but what can we still hope for the live-action series? Uh, for one, exposure of these um, actors who are people of color. You know, these aren't just um, whitewashing the original characters that were part of the Netflix, I'm sorry, part of the Nickelodeon series. And so seeing uh, actors who are of, of color, I'm very um, excited to see them. One in particular, Dallas Liu. Um, I've previously seen him in Pen15, which I adore. And um, him, he plays the older brother of uh, one of the leads. And whenever they have a scene together, I'm just, I'm always drawn to like their engagements because they've got excellent chemistry. And um, I'm just, I'm a fan of his. I really want to see how his career develops after this, especially because he'll be playing the role of Zuko. Zuko is a a tremendous character who goes through, um, who goes through change to say the least. I mean, if you've seen the original series, you know, the dynamic qualities of somebody like Prince Zuko. And so the fact that he's picking on this or picking up this uh, significant role to me is really going to show his star power. And um, I hope that's what comes out of it. Um, I trust the original creators. When I heard that they left, I was bummed out because um, it, that's their baby. You know, that's what they cherish. There's a new podcast up even uh, about the last airbender uh, the Avatar series, and I believe one of the creators is attached to that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if either of you know. Um, but it begs the question, you know, why did they leave? Was there creative differences? Um, I believe that there were. So what were they? Because if this isn't going to be the lighthearted, fun, um, still action-packed, well-choreographed <laughs> um, martial art fighting that we saw in um, the animated series then I don't want it. You know, I don't want it if it's not going to be what what we can, if it's not drawing from the things that fans appreciated from the animated series, then I have no interest in seeing the live action. Um, I don't want to see elements of like dark adulthood being drawn into this series because I think it's just the wrong place for it. Um, I can't wait for the exposure that this brings to the cast list. Um, I'm going to repeat, I cannot wait for that fight choreography to see how excellent it's going to look. I'm I'm excited. You know, I I'm glad that this cast list came out. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, there was a conversation that I was do that I was taking part in online about the live action movie, and I was doing some research into it. And, and like Shyamalan talks about in an interview, saying like, 
oh, like I wanted to approach the mythology aspects of it. Like I didn't want to check like the fart jokes and, you know, the, the cabbage guy stuff and the slapstick and all this. And I thought, okay, like I get that. I get the approach. But at the same time, that is so intrinsically part of what made the series so fun and what makes it so fun to revisit is that, yes, you can get a cabbage guy and then you can get, you know, Fire Lord Ozai almost killing his own son twice. Um, so, you know, you can get those things in tandem. And I hope Netflix realizes that. Um, on just a purely, you know, visual basis, I don't know many of the roles. Uh, I don't know many of the actors' roles, I should say. I haven't watched Pen 15 yet. Although I did look this up. Apparently, Dallas Liu is going to be in Shang-Chi and, um, uh, Kiwa Tony is going to be in, um, uh, What If at some point. So there's some Marvel connections there, which is kind of cool. Uh, I will say Dallas Liu looks exactly like Zuko. Like, that's pretty much how I pictured a young Zuko to look. So just purely on that level. And, of course, I'm more excited for the stuff that Michael and Brian are working on with Paramount+. Plus. I'm really hoping for Kiyoshi content. I'm really hoping for, you know, more prequel content or maybe even going into potentially live-action stuff here and there. But I don't care. Like, I trust them more than I do Netflix at this point. I know people are very wary of this. And for all the fair reasons, I get it. Like, I'm, I'm not jumping up for joy about this. But, like, I like the screen. Like, I like Sleepy Hollow. I like what Albert Kim did with that to a certain degree. Um, so, like, I still have, like, trepidatious hope, if you want to call it that. It's just more like, this is a slight hope. And you talk about new content coming. I'm ready for that sitcom with Katara and Aang and <laughs> Zen. Um, Bub. Oh, damn, their name slips me. But, Wait, you know, I'm ready for that Avatar family. I'm thinking about Tenzin and his brother and sister. I think it's uh, Kara. Um, Boomy and Kaya. Boomy and Kaya. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm ready for that sitcom when they're all kids. Dude, I have been dying for an intermediate series between Avatar and Korra for years. They never delivered, but hey, I mean, they gave us two beautiful series, so I can't ask for too much, but ooh, did they really just totally like, hey, time jump. And then Katara's just a healer, and we see her for maybe four or five episodes in Korra. Um, and we love her in all of it. We love her in all of it. All right, so uh, let's move on to the other casting announcement that we have this week. A little bit out of left field, the Sonic sequel is also happening, and Idris Elba is going to be voicing and potentially motion capturing for Knuckles the Echidna. Also, am I saying, is it Echidna or Echidna? To be honest, I don't know. Okay, so I've heard both pronunciations. I don't know. We all have confused faces, because I'm not so, sure. So you might as well just say both, just to be safe, and say, like, oh, I'm not sure on the pronunciation, whether it's blah or blah, but... I will take the GIF GIF approach, much noted. Um, there you go. <laughs> Idris Elba announced this casting via his own Instagram with just simply the caption, knock, knock, uh, to which actually Ben Schwartz on Twitter, if you guys did not see, responded just with who's there, which I think is one of the funniest things I've seen all year. Um, the Sonic the Hedgehog sequel does not currently have an official title or release date, but we know it's in production. We know that Jeff Fowler, the director, is going to be back in the director's chair. And of course, Ben Schwartz will be back to voice Sonic uh, in some capacity. We don't know if, you know, Jim Carrey or James Marsden or Tika Supter will be back, but we do know now that it is officially in production. There have been some still photos of, you know, pre-production, and now we know that Knuckles is going to be a prominent character. Uh, Sam, I want to know your reaction to this casting, to Sonic getting a sequel, because I know you reviewed it as well, so I want to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, so just quickly on that, too, uh, all of us are creators with Odyssey Online, specifically with the Arizona State University branch. And so if anyone was curious about that, check that out. And we will have a description somewhere in links. But uh, the point is, is, yeah, I, I did review that last year right before the world turned upside down. And honestly, I was more surprised 
with it than I thought I would be. And that's in a good way. Like I, I honestly really liked it a lot. Is it an Oscar winner? At first I thought it would be because of the way the world was, but the point is, is like, you know, it's not like one of the best movies out there, but honestly it's pretty fun. And you know, the bar isn't that high for video game movies specifically, but I thought it was a blast. Um, and so having said that for this upcoming sequel, I'm excited about it. I think it definitely warranted that, warranted that for anybody who hasn't seen Sonic yet, you'll want to check out the end credits scene because that could tease something for you. But the, uh, the point is, is that I think, I, I hope that it explores more of Sonic and his friends world, like more like Green Hill Zone than our world. Cause I'm kind of tired of that, that video game movie trope that we've been seeing specifically in Sonic and in Detective Pikachu, where it's like, Oh, let's bring these characters to our world, uh, our more realistic looking world. And it's like, no, I, I kind of want to see those cartoony worlds. I want to see them come to life in their homes. And I think that it's amazing that he was cast as Knuckles. I never would have pictured him in it, not for any particular reason. I just didn't think of it. And then and now that we have this in history, I'm I'm really hyped. So I, I don't know how you all feel about that, but I'm excited. <laughs> all right, I should just add just one quick detail. Uh, Jim Carrey, Tika Sumter, and James Marsden are all confirmed to come back as well. I just thought I'd add that in there. Uh, Noah, sorry, go on to you. No, that helps. Knock, knock. Idris Elba has... <laughs> A phenomenal voice. I um, am working on my voice impressions. That way I can match his level. So the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, I missed out on watching. And I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't uh, returned to the movie to go and watch it finally. Um, Sam, after hearing your praise for it, and especially after this announcement, I know that we're going to be wanting to keep up with any developments that have to do with Sonic the Hedgehog too so i'll be there i'll make sure that i watch sonic before the next episode is recorded and i will let you know what i think because apparently yes a very good video game to live action movie and you know the trope that you point out is definitely apparent in even um i believe tom and jerry like even tom and jerry they brought just the characters into the real world um think about the smurfs the smurfs are in the real world uh so it's definitely a trope i can't believe you know it the fact that you pointed it out now now i see it so thank you uh in in the immortal words of are you guys fans of black nerd comedy at all yeah in the, he did a video with Jerry Johns years ago where they were talking about, you know, like nostalgic uh, video games. And there, there's a point where they're, you know, talking about, you know, portals and stuff like that. And then Andre just goes, and they open a portal and they both just start cracking up. And I'm just like, yes, that's the personification of video games. <laughs> <They laughs> sorry, the the, sorry about the delayed. Yes, it's just I was shaking my head and then I realized if this isn't going to video, nobody can tell I'm saying yes. So, yes. <laughs> They, they can yes, use I their am. imaginations, much like this movie did. Like, I am with you. Like, I thought Sonic was way more creative and way more fun than it should have been. And, like, Ben Schwartz made an amazing Sonic. I think Jeff Fowler knew. Like, I shouldn't say exactly the tone to fit, but I thought a pretty good tone for, you know, bringing the fantastical character within, you know, mundane Seattle. Like, I think for that kind of mix, it worked pretty well. I am like you. I want to see more of, you know, the fantastical Sonic world, like, you know, spoilers for the end of the movie, but like, where do we see like those things? Like, where do we see like those places? Like, I want to see more of that. I, I will admit Idris Elba came a bit out of left field. But I'm not ecstatic about it. 
Um, I think in my head, I just had more like, oh, like bring Dan Green back, like bring one of the voice actors back, much like Colleen O'Shaughnessy is kind of being petitioned to come back as uh, as Tails at some point. I would love to see more of the voice actors get more talent because I know that is a woefully underrepresented portion of Hollywood, especially in major blockbusters. But you know what? Idris Elba is phenomenal. We're going to talk about him in Suicide Squad in just a little bit. But yeah, this is great news. I'm excited for the sequel. I never thought I'd be as excited to see a live action Sonic sequel after I'm sure all of us, you know, and the trauma of seeing the original marketing. But here we are. We are going to move on then to our last piece of news for today. Uh, again, a little bit of out of left field if you haven't been in the know. But there is a Hunger Games prequel officially now coming. Uh, I keep forgetting the darn title. The Ballad of Songbirds, Ballad and, Snakes. Songbirds and Snakes. It's a oh. it's a mouthful, so I don't is blame you. <laughs> it's not a new Game of Thrones season? No. Oh. Surprisingly, No. <laughs> Although it might as well be with all the killing. Um, this is set to take place around the 10th Hunger Games. Uh, this is the synopsis for the book that was also written by Susanna Collins, the, uh, the author of the original Hunger Games trilogy. We have a synopsis for the film coming out. It is the morning of the reaping that will kick off the 10th annual Hunger Games in the capital. 18-year-old Coriolanus Snow, of course, the character played by Donald Sutherland in the movies, is preparing for his one shot of glory as a mentor in the games. The once mighty House of Snow has fallen on hard times. It's fate, uh, it's fate hanging on the slender chance the Coriolanus will be able to outcharm, outwit, and outmaneuver his fellow students in order to mentor the winning tribute. Uh, we do not know uh, if Donald Sutherland will be involved, but we do know that Francis Lawrence, the director of uh, Catching Fire as well as the Mockingjay movies, he will be attached to direct uh, the movie once again, as well as Suzanne Collins and Michael Arndt who wrote uh, Toy Story 3 and Little Miss Sunshine. He will be co-writing the script as well. And we now, the, the big story is that we have a production start date of next year. So this is actually happening and Lionsgate is moving forward with more Hunger Games movies. Uh, Noah, I want to start with you. I know we're all varying degrees of Hunger Games fans to a, to a certain degree. Uh, what were your thoughts when you heard this announcement? And uh, are you excited to see more of young, to, uh, to make a better word, sexy snow? <laughs> young, sexy President Snow. Sexy uh, of course, I love me some Hunger Games content. I was a fan of the book series, read all three um, for the original trilogy featuring Katniss Everdeen. And uh, I was blown away by the movie, movie adaptations. I think that uh, Hunger Games was really done right. Um, from my opinion, uh, Catching Fire, I think for me, was like a very top movie for the next like couple years that came out uh, or the years that surrounded Catching Fire's release. I was just so big of a fan because it did so much for me and it it drew so much from the book that i i was so astonished by how well they did the book to movie adaptation for catching fire um that i knew i was gonna admire mockingjay the same way but then the trend started coming up for these final books to be split into two movies uh we saw that with deathly hollows we saw that with mockingjay and we saw it again with breaking dawn not in that order but um i want to say like that kind of took me out of it a little bit. You know, I think one of the Mockingjays was not as, you know, exciting as the other. So, um, you know, if it was one three-hour movie, would I have appreciated it more? I don't know. That's in the past. What's ahead is this new movie focusing on President Snow, um, a character who, by the end of the series, you you don't really have you definitely have reasons to hate him but it's almost like he's he's not the big bad that we were expecting because he's kind of frail and dying by the end of the series so Katniss realizes there's a new threat and that's of course coin um for fans of the series I mean for any fan of the movie or the book and so now that we're diving into Snow's character as a youth or like as a mentor um I want to see 
how the games have changed. I think maybe that's the most exciting element for me. I'm not so excited to dive into Snow's character. Like, okay, I know how, I know who this person becomes. I'm not sure how much I care about um, his origin or his beginning. That's all I have to say. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Hunger Games. So I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm not turned away. I'm definitely tuned in. Uh, Sam, you've read the book. So can you provide some context on that? Yeah, that's something I was just going to introduce. I, so I ended up reading The Battle of Songbirds and Snakes, and I, I actually really enjoyed it a lot. Just as a, a quick opinion summary, I felt like a majority of the book was so strong. The writing was really fun. It was interesting to see Snow's background, of course, before he became president. And here he's a teenager, and it's just crazy to see how this this young man becomes who we know from the original series. Uh, and so will it make you sympathize with him? Maybe for me personally, it didn't make me sympathize with him. Rather, it made me sympathize the people around him as if he were in the center of all this destruction. And I was more intrigued by some of the supporting characters, but point being, it's it's really great it, throughout a majority of the book, but then the end, it feels like whiplash. It's a whiplash ending, like not like the movie, but it's a whiplash ending because it it everything is resolved with air quotes so quickly that I, I had no idea what hit me. I was like, wait, so why did this happen? But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, a majority overall, I would recommend the books, but I I'm hoping that this film will be a bit more visceral because I feel like it was appropriate when hunger games first came out and it's young adult audience, they were all likely young adults, teenagers. And so the PG 13 rating makes sense because you want to have some of those people be able to go to the movies instead of like families or guardians being like, no, you can't because it's rated R. But now that that audience has grown up a little bit since the series started, I think an R rating would be really appropriate for this. And it's because some of the content in this prequel book it could be very dark. And um, I don't know if it would be achieved in the same way if it were only a PG-13 rating. I don't know. I know that, you know, that could be arguable because it might alienate the other audience from it. Like, you know, any any newer young adult uh, fans. But for people who have grown up liking the series, it could be really appropriate to do an R-rated movie. And I, I would appreciate that considering some of the visuals from that book were were pretty bad. They were pretty graphic. So I wonder what will happen there. Because you read the book, I want to ask you, are you afraid that any scene in the book or any uh, particular setting in the book is a little too, um, I, I can't seem to find the word. It's a little too, let's just say expensive to recreate. So you don't see them in- including, or perhaps it's something um, that you're afraid they may minimize in the theatrical production. Yeah, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but does um, is it clear that this prequel book is about the first Hunger Games ever? Because that's according what this is about. According to the synopsis, it's the 10th. The 10th? Yes. That's what it says in the official synopsis. Yeah, because I'm trying to remember what it was. Because like, I, I read this oh, like a year ago, so that's why I'm trying to remember more about the details. Uh, there is one scene that I will tell you, though, um, and so, like, because that's why I'm confused, because I could have sworn that when I was reading it, maybe it's because they were diving deep in the history of it. So cutting all that out to answer your question. So, yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I, I feel like there's this one scene with a tribute that was extremely graphic and, uh, you know, graphic for like a, a general audience. And I, 
I'm not sure production value wise how they're going to do that. But if anything, that's probably where a majority of the production will go. Uh, I, I think it will go into the arena that they're in. I'm hoping that it's as big and, and astounding as it is in the way they describe it in the book. So I'm hoping that they really put a lot of love into that production for the arena. But, you know, I, um, otherwise I think, yeah, one tribute's death is pretty bad. Um, all I got to say is that they're suspended somehow. Um, and it's just kind of crazy. Uh, so that's, that's all I'll say about it. <laughs> I will make this quick because we have to move into our next segment. Uh, I think President Snow is one of the underrated film villains of the 2010s. I think Donald Sutherland makes him absolutely mortifying, especially in the first Mockingjay. I don't love the first Mockingjay movie, but I think he is at his most terrifying in that movie. Um, I'm excited to see the Prince Lawrence's come back. Just keep Gary Ross and his shaky cam away from it. I'm sorry. I didn't like that approach in the first movie. Um, <laughs> I didn't but, either. It made me dizzy a couple times. Right. But like, I like that Francis Lawrence has come back. I like there's the continuity there. I think it could be rated R. This is the same studio that gave us the John Wick movies. They are used to giving us, you know, mid-budget rated R movies. Um, and yeah, I think that Snow is a fascinating character you can explore within the context of early Pen M and early tributes and, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm excited to a degree. I didn't think I would be. Um, I don't want to see, you know, sexy, likable snow. I don't want to see that. I want to see sort of more the Game of Thrones, you know, intrigue of morality tale. Like, I want to see something like that. But you know what? This is a good first sign. So here we are. I would like to see them cast a very flawed snow with kind of like a dark side. I don't know who that would be at the moment. I'd have mm -hmm. to think on that. But I'm really hoping that they cast someone who's a bit flawed and not like pretty by Hollywood standards, if that makes sense. You know that half of the internet just went, Tom Hiddleston! <laughs> yeah, after we know all of his background for um, his auditions for Thor and everything, yes. <laughs> all right, so Sam, what do we got next? Uh, yeah, so then, you know, I think for now, that's all the time that we have for our big news highlights. And so we are going to go into our quick hit section. So this is a section where any of us, if there are huge stories that really resonate with us, at the time, then we want to just mention them real quickly. And so for me this week, I personally didn't have any, but um, did Noah, did you happen to have any? We'll start with you. Yes. Thank you, Sam. Uh, these are my quick hits. It's one quick hit. Uh, I'm a fan of the show, What We Do in the Shadows. That's an FX show, and that is available on Hulu. And before season three actually is even made available, uh, I'm reading on bloodydisgusting.com that season four has just been confirmed. So we are in for a treat when it comes to What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, just reading a little bit about the show. It seems that in the next season, of course, this is the show about... Um, three vampires living with their um, familiar and it's a hilarious like what's the word I'm looking for like deadpan show and I'm just excited for the content it focuses on vampires and just their day-to-day -day when they're not Dracula so um, I love that element it says in season three we're going to be introduced to some new characters like a siren some gargoyles uh, werewolf kickball and that's all um, laid out on this article on bloodydisgusting.com and all I can say is that I'm a fan of the show we're getting two more seasons. I'm super excited. I hope you all are too. I will simply say I love the movie. I have been dying to watch the show. I just haven't gotten around to it. The show um, will have you dying, Brandon. And throwing it over to you for your quick hit. Yes. Uh, so I, I know there's very few of us out there, but uh, Kid Cosmic fans, we got a season two and a season three, actually. Kid Cosmic and the Intergalactic Truck Stop, a.k.a. Kids Cosmic Season 2, is coming to Netflix this October. Uh, I Sorry, this September 7th, I should say. 
Uh, we just got the new trailer this week. It's awesome. If you have not watched the original Kid Cosmic, it is a 10-episode animated series on Netflix from Craig McCracken, best known for his work on Powerpuff Girls and Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. It is about this young kid named Kid and his uh, merry band of, you know, misfits, desert dwellers, and somewhere in New Mexico slash Arizona, it's never really clear, but they find these, like, alien power gems very much akin to Avengers Infinity War, and they have to deal with, you know, alien threats in this tiny little desert town. It's very fun. The art style is great. And we didn't know for sure if we were getting a season two. And now we're getting at least two more seasons. So if you're an animation fan like me, this is reason to celebrate. What We Do in the Shadows season three is going to premiere Thursday, September 2nd. It says on FX, I will be uh, confirming whether that's going to be available on Hulu, but they tend to do uh, episode releases uh, same day. So I'm sure that will be made available on Hulu. And then season four, we can expect sometime in 2022. And Kid Cosmic Season 2 is set for release on September 7th on Netflix. Season 3 is currently in the works for an undisclosed date. All right, so usually during the week we get to the new releases that we've seen. We are all critics, and this is a film and TV show, and we want to get you guys up to date on that. Fortunately, this is a weird week, and it's also our pilot. So we feel like we have a little bit of leeway. So we are going to talk about some relatively new releases that I'm sure most of you have seen, that all of us have seen, that we can you know discuss and go at length. And maybe we'll talk about some new releases in the future as well potentially on the show. Uh, we're going to start with James Gunn's The Suicide Squad in theaters and on HBO Max currently. Uh, this is the standalone sequel, so to speak, to uh, David Ayer's 2016 Suicide Squad, of course, with uh, Margot Robbie, Amanda Wall, uh, <laughs> Amanda Waller, Margot Robbie, Michael Davis, uh, Joel Kinnaman, and others. Those three return to this movie as well, along with uh, new co- along with uh, new cast members, Idris Elba, who we talked about earlier, uh, John Cena, Daniela Melchior, uh, Nathan Fillion, Peter Capaldi, the list goes on and on, and we don't have the time. Uh, this is, of course, again, another Suicide Squad story. Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davis, is once again up to her, you know, shady government tactics of employing supervillains to do missions that no one else would. On this mission, uh, they are sent, seemingly the main team is sent on a mission to Corto Maltese, which is a, uh, which is a uh, fictional island in the Caribbean, to destroy this thing called Project Starfish, which we don't know about, but it's the secret Nazi project that this country has been working on. There is apparently two teams, uh, one led by Joel Kinnaman's Rick Flagg, who is also returning from the first movie, as well as the side team, which is uh, Robert Dubois, a.k.a. Bloodsport, who is a sort of biotech mercenary played by Idris Elba. Uh, again, this is, you know... Oh, sorry, the conversion just finished. I'm going to start from there. there. Um, yeah, so once again, this is a, a standalone sequel. This is James Gunn tackling this. He also wrote the film. And it is streaming on HBO Max and in theaters right now. It has been doing fairly well, all things considered, despite what all the box office reports have said. Uh, But, you know, we have all seen it and we all have very, I want to say, very good feelings about it. So, uh, Noah, if we can start with you, uh, your thoughts on, first and foremost, the original Suicide Squad, if you had any past experience with that from, say, the comics or anything like that. And also just in a glimpse, what did you think about James Gunn's take? Yeah, Brandon, when the Suicide Squad was announced and it was going to be helmed by James Gunn, uh, of course, the champion of Guardians 1 and Guardians 2 of the Galaxy, uh, I was, for the most part, I was excited because this was a, a new iteration of a famous squad because we we came to know the Suicide Squad from, oh my God, his name slips my mind. Is it David Iyer? Yes. Yeah? Okay. From David Iyer's Suicide Squad, we got... Uh, most popularized uh, with Harley, right? Everybody familiarized himself with Harley Quinn. 
Um, of course, the new show on HBO Max uh, was also contributing to the popularity of her character, uh, Birds of Prey. So the fact that the Suicide Squad was announced, it had not only Harley Quinn, but all of these other characters that distracted you from the fact that, like, you know, she's not going to be like a spotlight spotlit in this movie. And I was excited about that. I was excited for the camera to be shared between all these different characters because I know um, when the cast list came out, I was like, Pete Davidson, like, who is Pete Davidson going to play? Like, um, Sylvester Stallone, like, I was on board completely. Uh, and then having watched it, I was devastated. <laughs> the movie opens up with so much just ridiculous action um, that will eliminate some members of this team. Uh, and seeing that happen on screen, like, in the first in the opening act, I was, okay, this is the movie I'm signing up for. Like, this is James Gunn's Suicide Squad. And uh, I think that when I was watching the movie, a lot of the scenes reminded me of just, like, comic comic panels, like comic book panels. Um, it's clear that he is a comic book fan, um, and he really gave the story the um, the quality that I think it deserves. I am a fan of the movie. I think its pacing is troublesome um it did kind of have me curious in the middle like where the action was going to get started or like when we we're going to start engaging with that third act um with project starfish uh because there was a moment there where i think i just i didn't know where it was going um but that being said i love james gunn i love the way that he's done this movie and uh how he spotlight these different characters i think is a is a huge um, it deserves a huge applause. Like I, I'm, I'm very satisfied with how uh, how these characters were portrayed in the movie. I mean, but I'm not a comic book fan, so that could be a differing opinion among those who know King Shark from the comics or know Rat Catcher too. Um, but the way that I saw them on screen, like I loved them. And my uh, my feelings are kind of the same as Noah, where you know, with that interesting, that blew me away because I definitely didn't expect that. And to me, it almost felt like the equivalent of watching a comic book, Saving Private Ryan, where it felt like a Normandy scene. There was just a lot of action. And can you imagine what that storyboard looked like in production, where it's just like, oh, we're going to have this happen and this happen. I can only imagine the drawings and the renderings were probably really fun to look at. And like you said, similar to comic book panel. Um, But the, the, you know, I thought it was a really fun movie. It knew exactly what it was and really carried that that feeling throughout the entire movie. But I also found myself in the middle kind of guessing like, Oh, I wonder what's going to happen at this point, because it, it, it felt like it left a lot of room for comedic effect. You know, like there were a lot of amazing memorable scenes that were also kind of hit with a punchline right after the end of the, the entire fight scene, for example, with like one with Harley Quinn that happened. And so I, um, I don't know. I, I was just, I was kind of confused on where it was going near the end there. And then same uh, you know, like I, I just felt like it finished strong at least. So I, um, I would love to see more of the suicide squad that we have. And so hopefully that means we'll get some more adaptations of it, but then, you know, like I, I am also not a, um, not as knowledgeable about the comic books. And so I would love to hear from you, Brandon, like, cause you, you always seem to know a lot about the comic books and I'd really love to hear your opinion too. I will preface this by saying I have really not read a lot of suicide squad. Like I've read some of the newer runs. I read the, you know, Just Sleeper Suicide Squad crossover when it came out, but like I haven't read like the original Ostrander stuff. I haven't read like the, you know, the stuff in the 90s. Like 
but but I am familiar with the team tuner strip from like the animated movies and of course the Harley Quinn series and you know various forms of media that have sort of indoctrinated me to that and of course the 2016 movie which I didn't like and I wasn't excited really to see although I I am I will say release the air cut like I think it should be a thing but that's a whole nother conversation um I was like you know when I heard James Gunn was attached to this I was like perfect like we all saw Guardians we all love what he did with that this is aesthetically a very similar thing why not and i think he fires on all cylinders about this i love this movie it's probably my second or third favorite dc movie at the moment um and i also love the specifically i love like the tones that he takes from both Ayer's suicide squad and from kathy yon's birds of prey i love sort of the nonsensical sort of you know hysterical whimsy that birds of prey provides along with sort of the gritty war morality tale that air was trying to go for with 2016 and he kind of makes a friendly mashing of both of them on top of just doing what james gunn does which is just you know off the wall humor you know balls to the wall action like all this stuff the cast are i think mo- for the most part amazing but i i've singled this out in my review and go check that out by the way shameless plug um margot robbie is once again phenomenal as harley quinn she does so much with this role i continue to be absolutely impressed by her and daniela melchior is going to be and i haven't said if we can swear on the show but i'm deciding right now she's a goddamn star uh she is fantastic in this she is the heart of this movie she is exactly why this movie works but like john cena can act now which is weird um idris elba is great as usual davis elsmashian gets some really cool moments uh peter capaldi gets one or two really fun moments and then of course you know king shark has become you know the fan favorite of all fan favorites so but like i like john murphy's score i like that it's sort of like this really sly but really picking commentary on u.s foreign policy within the context of the madness and like i remember getting in third act and just thinking oh we're doing this we're gonna talk about this cool like why not um and i just love how it's basically just a nonsensical roller coaster that does have a point to it and uh, amanda waller viola davis is fantastic i forgot to mention that as well just so much of this movie i absolutely adore i've watched it at least twice on hbo max now which again going to our point earlier about accessibility i love this movie i know i'm a bit more high on it than both of you guys but i cannot say enough good things about it a point i wanted to add is i'm definitely like more of the horror guy here on the popcorn club that's like our own secret name um and the gore in this movie. I was so satisfied to have that bloody fun that uh, James Gunn delivered in the Suicide Squad. In the first Suicide Squad, it was hard to watch a person who can, you know, conjure flames from their hands or like Deadshot, who is, um, I mean, we know who Deadshot is. Uh, but when it gets to the action, they're fighting kind of like these barnacle looking monsters. Like, I don't really know what they are. I can't even remember. Um, and then, uh, coming to James Gunn's Suicide Squad, telling you seven minutes in, maybe it's like less than that. We just see a head get like blown to bits. And um, every like action scene that follows that is um, exactly just as gory, just as like hard, hard hitting with the punches. And uh, I love that. I think that it, it didn't feel out of place. Um, it didn't feel over the top either. Like I was definitely satisfied with the amount of um, action, gore, and the fun that was had throughout because it all just worked so well together. So kudos to James Gunn, kudos to everybody on that team. Totally. And like, I, I will just say not going to spoilers, but I think the stakes are kind of terrifying on two different fronts. Like I already mentioned the whole, you know, subtext of the movie that it has, which is, I think, equally dreadful. 
But also, once we get into, the, and I won't spoil the villain for you know anyone who hasn't seen it, but once we get into it, <laughs> yes, exactly. But once we get into that, it's a little terrifying for a character who, at least for my money in the comics, has always been kind of goofy. But once James Gunn gets a hold of it, it's like, oh, no, there's some serious ramifications to this. And one hell of a final action sequence. Like, I, th- probably the biggest laugh I got from my theater was during that final action sequence of Polka Dot Man, like, if you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, I, again, like, I, I wish I could spoil more of it. Like, I wish we could. But I, but I also know that we're on a time crunch. And, you know, so getting to, you know, the numbers then. Uh, numbers out of 10. Uh, do we have any? I'd say, like, an 8. If I'm rating the original, original was like a, I mean, for the time, I kind of didn't have so many problems with it, but it's reflecting on it, right? So the original, I'd say like a, can I, I'm gonna say five. Um, You're just saying a five. Oh, we're talking about the original? If we're talking about the original, for me, that's a solid like two. It's like two. Uh, I need to, I haven't rewatched it, so I don't know how bad that movie was. I do hate what they did to the costuming, and I completely agree that they fetishized and, like, sexualized the hell out of Harley for no reason. Um, and it was unflattering. So, uh, you know what? Yeah, let's throw that to the dumpster. Let's give that a one. And then uh, coming to James Gunn's Suicide Squad, I love me some James Gunn. I love me some comic book fun. I would watch this movie again and again. I'm going to give it an eight. Yeah, Ayers... Air Suicide Squad is a mess, and I understand that people will come at me with studio interference and you know, all the reasons that it was, and I get it, but it, it, it was a mess. It's a very generous four for me. Like, I think there are redeeming things about that that make it watchable, but not to the same degree. This is infinitely more entertaining, infinitely more interesting. The cast are so well-rounded and well-executed. The stakes could never be higher in this one. It's a nine for me. I adored this. I really loved it. And I hope that for any of you who are trepidations about this, unless you're, you know, super sensitive to gore, in which case maybe, you know, skip this and go watch, you know, Birds of Prey. If you are not super trepidations to gore, please give this a shot. It owns every second that it's on screen. So uh, now we're going to move on to the other uh, film we're going to talk today is The Green Knight. Uh, the Green Knight. I can't speak like Ralph. Why did I try to speak like Ralph Enison? I have the exact <laughs> opposite voice of Ralph Enison. Uh, this the is Green David- Knight. The Green Knight. Uh, there you a, go <laughs> hey we did it i'll leave that one in uh bloopers uh this is david lowry's latest for, based on the anonymous poem of sir gawain and the green knight gawain okay. is what i've heard as well okay then i will go with gawain this is of course the tale of sir gawain and the green knight in this movie played by dev patel he is uh king arthur's nephew and who in this movie is played by sean harris uh he is this up-and-coming nobleman knight he has a relationship with a uh, barmaid played by alicia vikander one day this mysterious green wooden played by Ralph Venison wanders into uh, King Arthur's court. And he basically says, whoever can strike me down, I will you know, have this wager that I will be able to beat you in a year. So Dev Patel, you know, does what he does. And that leads to some very terrifying stakes a year from now. And the movie follows uh, Sir Gawain as he travels the countryside, meets new people, meets new adventures, all on his way to his eventual confrontation with the Green Knight. Uh, I will start with this one just uh, to get it out of the way. I have been a pretty solid fan of David uh, Lowry's other one, Ethan Body Saints. I think Pete's Dragon movie is frankly really underrated. So I was really excited to see what he could do with something like this. And I've been a fan of Dev Patel's for actually going back to our earlier topic with Last Airbender. Like I thought he was one of the few positive aspects of that movie. And I've been excited to see his career ever since. Um, this movie is a lot. 
Uh, it's definitely an A24 movie. It's ambitious as all hell. It's very confusing at points. And I think De- I think David Lowry lets the atmosphere and lets the mood of the movie take over itself at some points. And I really don't think it helps, even in a theater where I think the bombast really helps. Uh, that being said, I do think there is a lot to like about this. On a technical level, I have nothing bad to say about it. Its visuals are stunning for like $60 million, however many the budget was. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy movies that were able to do a lot with so little. Uh, Dev Patel does wonders in this. I love how he's able to merge sort of like the boyish charm with sort of the, you know, the grandiose of what knighthood it is and sort of that conflict of where that all comes from. There's some great supporting performances. Barry Keown pops up as a uh, burglar at one point. He's, you know, despicable and lovely. Joel Kinnaman, Joel Kinnaman, Joel Edgerton pops up at one point uh, as a lord of the house and he's kind of cool. Ralphie Nesson is terrifying as the Green Knight. Um, I will say I don't think the humor quite works. I think he tries to imbue it with a little bit of like, you know, oh, how ridiculous is this kind of thing? And I don't think it totally works. Um, But I certainly think it's worth dissecting. I think it's a movie that I'm going to come back to and I want to come back to for what it's trying to say about, you know, glory and knighthood and where we place the blame of prestige on certain people. But I also acknowledge it is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So, Sam, I want to go to you because you were the first reaction I heard from it personally. You were not that high on it. Has your opinion changed? No. (laughs) That's an immediate no. And I feel bad because I heard from a majority of people and they just so happened to be male. They loved the movie. And it's just like, I I don't know. I'm, you know, in the way that they loved it, I thought to myself, did we see the same movie? Because for me, I was honestly bored out of my wits because there are trials that uh, Sir Gawain has to go through in the middle of the movie. Those I'm not going to go in depth on for time's sake and spoiler's sake, but it's just those, as he was going through these trials and, and tests of his character, it just to me didn't feel as obvious. If you think about it in big picture, I get what they were trying to do. Um, but for me, the most engaging scenes were the last 10 minutes of the movie. I thought that that was a fascinating spin. And for anyone who's familiar with Arthurian lore, this story is going to sound very familiar to you. It is directly based off of Sergoine and the Green Knight. So it's it's very similar premise that that Brandon was discussing in the synopsis. But then things as they go on are a little more different, uh, a little different compared to the original Arthurian lore. And so I wonder if people who are fans of that would feel otherwise. But, you know, there are uh, lots of different things going on in this movie. It's very... Um, it feels like a like a nightmare, if you will. Like there are just so many astounding visuals in the movie that it feels nightmarish. Uh, so I do like the style that they went with it. And like you said, technical wise, it was a beautiful film. I couldn't stop looking at it, even though I might have been like uh, like a little disengaged from the narrative. And visually, I was astounded by what they were able to present production wise. So, Sam. Sam, thank you so much for that take. I mean, I was reluctant to talk about my boredom with the movie, but I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, I'm going to piggyback on all of your comments. Um, The visuals presented in this movie are amazing. They're actually what drew me to it. 
uh, initially when I, I'm on Reddit. So initially when I had been scrolling on uh, some movies, subreddits, I'd seen uh, posters about the Green Knight. I'd seen a little bit of information about the production. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, it looks like a Knight's Tale. Uh, no idea. Like, I'm not engaging, like, with a trailer or, like, reading up on what its background is at all. Um, and it wasn't until, I think, on Instagram or one of the platforms, I saw a short trailer clip of the Green Knight. And what you see is almost like a giant um, in the distance that reaches for uh, Gawain, our, our protagonist. And that visual uh, was enough for me. I was like, whoa, pause that trailer. I'm not going to watch it anymore. If there's a giant in this, like, I wonder how fantastical it's going to get. So um, I was on board. I bought tickets with a friend and we went and watched it. And then I kind of... Um, well, it wasn't that quickly that I tuned out because in the beginning, the movie really does well at setting up this world, um, introducing the characters of the king. Uh, yes, Sir Gawain is the nephew of King Arthur, and he has this mission to almost prove his knighthood or really define himself as a knight, you know. Um, and what does that path look like towards your destiny? Well, that becomes his entire year, um, or I'm sorry, not his year, but the end of a year where he promised to receive a strike from the Green Knight who he struck down the Christmas before. And I think it plays more like episodic where you aren't entirely connected to the overarching like narrative, the overarching like journey until you're in the beginning, in the end. Like there are some ingredients that he receives along the way, like he gets his crafts along the way, but the movie doesn't make the movie doesn't make a lot of sense connecting um, moment to moment. And uh, throughout his journey, you do get like these long uh, visceral shots of his landscape or sort of like the madness that becomes him being in isolation and just traveling so far on this grand journey that's going to define who he is. And it's in those moments that I felt lost. It's in those moments that I felt like, wow, this is a long breath. And I'm like sighing, like I'm like, whew, like I'm waiting for that next you know, an, an iterance of an action sequence. Um, I, I'm not saying that it it needed an intense battle, but I was waiting for one. Like I, I really needed something just to excite me. And this isn't that kind of story. This the, the most exciting thing I think here is is those visuals, is the costuming, is the special effects. Um, Dev Patel, amazing to watch as a knight. He um, seeing him grow up in his different movie productions. Uh, I'm just this reignited like the flame of a fan for me to just uh, continue looking out for his projects. Uh, the cast performs phenomenally in this, like there's no, there's no particular like production reason why this fell through for me. It's just inexperience. Like while I was watching it, I could have honestly came back to it after his trials, like after the first, after the first trial, I might've been like, okay, that was a great short run. Let me pause it and let me go do something and then come back to it. Because in one whole sitting, it was a lot for me to just ingest and not really feel rewarded for. Um, and that's, that's all I have to say. Um, it's beautiful film. I think cinematography is um, astounding at times, just a little bit too taking too long in some places. I hate a 360 shot and it does it twice. Um, and that's all I have to say. If you're talking about the one in the forest, I disagree. I think that shot is awesome. But Are the other you, one... Okay. I hate. Agree to disagree. I just think it gets blurry. And I like... I get dizzy. I don't know. It takes forever. It feels like a music video. What do you appreciate? I, I will say, like... Did you guys watch Ad Astra with Brad Pitt? <sighs> yes. A, a long time ago, though. It feels like it's it was ages ago. But yes. Yeah. 
this movie feels like that on acid, like that kind of approach of, you know, very kind of central character who you're trying to get attached. And if you can get attached to that character, everything else about the atmosphere and the questions of humanity, like everything else will fall into place. Probably. I know that we're kind of on the same and kind of not on the same page about that. So, but like it kind of had that vibe to me of like, you know, a guy going through adventures where the director is so concerned with atmosphere that sometimes gets away from them. But you mentioned action sequences. That's why I brought that up because Ad Astra has that whole like moon chase sequence where it breaks up the monotony of, you know, the, the methodical stuff and it brings something up. This doesn't have that. And I kind of wish that it did, especially as an Arthurian story. Like we could have had a duel. We could have had maybe not with the Green Knight, but like some kind of duel or some kind of chase sequence and maybe break that up. But again, I also think of like what David Lowry is going for with this. And I thought there was something really interesting here, even if it does get away from him at a lot of points. And I, I will say, just as far as the cast list goes, I don't think Alicia Vikander is used well in this. She, she is an Oscar winner for a reason. She deserves better than this. And she's in two roles. Yeah, I agree with that. Cause, and that's something just to add to. Like, um, so I am a person who normally has a great patience for slow burning movies. And for some reason, this one just didn't connect with me. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you mentioned it, Brandon, that it's like, if you connect with the main character, that's going to do a world's difference in your connection with the story and what message they're trying to convey. And I guess for me, I did not connect with Dev Patel's character. And for all I know, maybe my expectations were just super high because I felt like the marketing for this movie was really cool. I like the aesthetics that they were doing with the movie posters, how it kind of like subverts your expectations. It's called the green Knight, but you're advertising red and yellow. Like it's just interesting. And, and it does look very visceral looking, um, and, and it, I don't know. I just, I just think that it was fun and interesting. And I'm like, Oh, I love Dev Patel and where his career has gone. So let's see where this goes. And I guess maybe I psyched myself up too much because that could happen all the time, you know, but, um, otherwise, yeah, you, you have to at least appreciate Dev Patel's work in this. He's amazing. And like you said, I, I think Alicia Vikander was really underutilized considering she plays two different roles. And I feel like that role with her Angela uh, Edgerton are really underutilized. Because they play a bigger part in original lore, so. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap that up then. Uh, ratings out of ten. I gave it a six in the review. Which yes. also go read that, by the way. Yeah, check out Sam's review available on Odyssey Online. Uh, make sure to plug yourself. Actually, we're probably going to plug at the end, huh? Well, I'm not good at ratings out of ten. I'm sorry, team. But uh, this one, The Green Knight, I just gave su- the Suicide Squad an eight. So comparing it to that, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to say five and a half. That's a lie. I'm going to say six. I'm going to say six, a solid six for me. Okay, fair. Uh, I go back and forth between a 7.5 and an eight, just because I, I go back and forth about how much I actually resonated with it. I think I still go with an eight only because like that thing that people talk about of like the experience and like I got to see it and you know a semi-packed theater and experience it on the wall and like experience everything visually that was going for and I really appreciated that and I appreciate that it's getting me invested in coming back into it but yeah it, it is not perfect so like if you're interested it's coming out in VOD in the next I think couple of weeks if you can see it in the theater I recommend it I don't know if I'd be the only one but I would certainly say check it out in some capacity or at least check out the trailers if you're curious. So with that, we're going to hop up in some TV stuff today. Uh, we're going to try and keep a, a dedicated TV segment during the show. We usually would have a couple of things today. We only have really one for today. Uh, and I swear we're not just going to talk about Disney Plus stuff. We're not just, you know, Disney stands, although we kind of are. Uh, what If uh, is finally here. 
uh, Marvel's, the MCU's, I should say, first uh, proper animated show is uh, here. We have all seen the first episode uh, at the time of recording this. Hopefully by the time it comes out, episode two will also be out, which none of us have had the pressure of seeing yet, but we were very excited for. Uh, if you are completely in the dark about what if, it is basically exactly as it sounds. It is what if this thing happened in the MCU? So what if, you know, T'Challa became Star-Lord or what if, you know, uh, seemingly the Civil War turned into a zombie war, things that we've seen in some of the trailers and things like that. So this episode, uh, the very first episode is what if Captain Carter was the first Avenger? It is essentially a retelling of Joe Johnston's uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, which also just celebrated a 10 year anniversary. So this is very timely. Uh, it is essentially a retelling of that, but with one thing changed where uh, Peggy Carter, who is once again voiced by uh, uh, Haley Atwell herself, is essentially turned into the first super soldier of this version of Captain America, Captain Carter. Uh, again, we have all had the chance to see this. Uh, Sam, I want to start with you. What were your expectations going into What If? And what did you think of this first episode? Yeah, so we actually kind of talked about this a bit off camera, off recording. But it, it with What If? I was a little like skeptical of how this would go just because it felt very like fanficy, if you will. So uh, I was just worried, you know, like how much they would cater to like audiences and people who are just kind of writing their own fanfics um after seeing movies in marvel in marvel's universe but i honestly ended up really liking it a lot and i think what helped was the animation style i really appreciated that art style that's in there it's just something that's really sharp and colorful i thought it was really really fun um especially because it's something to chew on you know it's like what if this situation were to happen and i feel like it's setting up a lot of uh, plot devices for where the Doctor Strange movie might go, because who knows if those might come back somehow or might even come back in a different Marvel movie, because it just feels like, you know, with all the rumors and things like that going forward with the Marvel Cinematic Universe here for phase four, who knows what's going to happen? They could honestly bring up a lot of different things and we may or may not expect them. So, uh, yeah, that's just kind of my my quick thought on it. Uh, Noah, what about you? Uh, what do you think of what if? When What If was first announced, I was really uh, excited to see the how many character swaps would actually be introduced. Uh, of course, with the premiere episode, we got uh, Peggy Carter as the first Avenger. The animation immediately surprised me. Uh, it's reminiscent of like Borderlands, so I'm a gamer. Uh, I appreciate the graphics looking like they're coming from Borderlands. Um, of course, I'm a fan of the game Apex Legends and a lot of their more like cinematic video material is um, in this same like pop. I don't, I'm not going to call it pop art, but it's just very, uh, Sam, what did you say? Like it's very flashy colors. And I like the hard lines. Like I do like this new was pointed out to me by a friend that it reminded them of uh, the Miles Morales movie uh, into the spider verse. And so I was like, okay, like I can definitely see um, some comparisons there. Uh, what I'm most excited about when it comes to the what if series is just the imaginative storytelling that we can do with animation that we can't achieve uh, with live action. I think that with all of our Marvel movies, of course, everyone loves the character development that we get um, any of the, um, emotional development especially but with the what if series i i feel like seeing these short uh episodes of uh like you say like hypotheticals um but see them realized in animation i think we're going to get more fun out of just the visual storytelling rather than diving deep into these characters um which i don't mind because i think that's that's what we want with the what if series we want to see um these completely wacky scenarios just being uh, realize in front of us. And I'm most excited for that zombies iteration because I'm just a big zombies fan. 
I've picked up the Marvel Zombies comics uh, from time to time, but never like sat completely with them. So uh, I'm just very excited to see that. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with it. The Spider Verse comparison is actually apt, especially in a lot of the uh, the colorings and a lot of the uh, the line designs. I have said for however long this was announced, I said this had the potential to be the best thing that Marvel has ever done because it is purely it is purely a creative endeavor. Like everything that we've, you know, described about the show, it can be anything and it should be anything. Just as, you know, the what if comics of, you know, like the early, you know, the 60s and 70s, whenever they initially came out, I, I'm sure it was probably earlier and I'm probably just being dumb about this. But whenever like, you know, the original concept of what if came about, that's what it was. It was telling writers like, hey, you can come up with these weird things and they don't have to matter. Although in this case, it's a bit of the reverse because for anyone who has seen Loki, all of this matters now. I really enjoyed the first episode. I don't think the animation is entirely consistent. Um, and that is all due respect to, you know, Blue Spirit and, you know, the animation companies behind this. Like, I think what they do stylistically is really neat between, like, the kind of cell shading mixed with, like, Norman Rockwell paintings almost. Like, I like that design choice. I like the movements of the characters. There's just a couple of, like, facial expressions that really work. There's a couple of, like, backgrounds that feel a bit blurry. But those are nitpicks. Like, I like it as a stylistic choice. I love hearing Haley Atwell get another chance as uh, Peggy and another incarnation of Peggy who gets to explore, I think, the things that Agent Carter wanted to do. But I think whether it was for, you know, ABC restrictions or whether it was just because Marvel didn't have a ton of faith in it at the time, they weren't allowed to dive into those things. And within a half an hour, we get those things explored more and more, whether it's, you know, her relationship with, you know, uh, like army institutions or, you know, diving deeper into a different side of her relationship with Steve, which is really adorable and like, Shout out to Josh Keaton for coming in and, you know, replacing Chris Evans on that. That was really cool to hear. Um, and yeah, just a lot of fun, a really kind of, you know, embodying the adventure moments of that first Captain America movie, but in an entirely kind of, you know, wobbly way. And I cannot wait to see more. Yeah, to your point, especially so many people love Haley Atwell and what she brought with Peggy Carter. So it's just really refreshing, like you said, for her to get another chance to tell a different story. So yeah, who knows what will happen from here once again. That's the summary of what if is who knows. <laughs> another I, exactly. question is proposed. <laughs> I, uh, I, do, I do want to pose the question before we dive into our next segment. Uh, what uh, is there any particular, and this is jumping off the gun a little bit, are there any particular like what if scenarios that you guys have been thinking about since this was announced of things? So like, I would love to see this scenario. And if oh. we don't have time, we'll jump into it later, but I, I figured I'd ask. I'm looking at the cover art um, on the IMDb page, and I see Spider-Man with Doctor Strange's cape. Yeah. And so big, huge question mark. Like, what's going on there? So we're saying the Sorcerer Supreme was our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. How, how does he juggle that? He's in high school still. So what if that was happening is is my is my um secondary to the marvel zombies because i told you you know zombies is where it's at for me so i'm excited i will say i can't wait for because apparently there's going to be an episode where ultron gets all the infinity stones and i cannot wait to see how that turns out uh as far as ones that have not been announced yet i mentioned this on a uh, no kips required a couple days ago there's two that stand out to me uh, one that I heard about on Twitter, which is not my own, I should put that out there. Someone had the idea of going back to the first Iron Man movie. What if instead of Tony getting the suits, it's Yinsen? So Tony dies in the cave and Yinsen becomes Iron Man, which I think is a fascinating notion about how you can switch the, the biggest temple hero of your universe to someone who is not as charismatic as Tony Stark. I would love that idea. And the other one, going to Noah's point about the uh, Doctor Strange thing, is not if Spider-Man becomes Sorcerer Supreme. Oh, no. What if Wanda became the Sorcerer Supreme? Oh, shit. Like, so, like, like, imagine, 
like my pitch was like after you know age of ultron or after you know civil war when like you know sokovia comes crashing down like wanda goes missing and yeah there you go and you know she makes her way to kamartage and she meets the ancient one and instead of stephen strange it's wanda who takes on the training and everything so i would love to see either of those ideas I love now, your ideas. I feel like we can't top that. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to flaunt. <laughs> um, but speaking more on the series premiere, um, do you have faith that they're going to bring back any characters for like um, maybe like a recap in the next episode? And I mean, like with fresh content, not just, hey, here's what you missed in the last what if. Like, do you think there's any connected nature to these? Um, of course, with Loki's ending, we can speculate that they are actually happening somewhere out there. I mean, they have to be. Um, but where do you think this, how do you think this will play in the long run, like as an entire series, as, it, uh, as a uh, complete feature? I think there will be some connectivity. Like, I think you might hear, you know, the Watcher reference, like, you know, the soldier that never was, or like, you know, the, you know, the scientist that went too far or something. Like, I think there will be things like that. I hope that eventually we get like this whole, you know, aptly named adventure style crossover with, you know, T'Challa, Star-Lord and everything. Like, I hope that eventually comes, but I don't think that will happen. I think it might be too jumbled for what they want to do. So we'll see. But as far as the first episode goes, the premiere, um, I'll be tuning in every Wednesday. That's their new release days, right? And <laughs> catching those what if episodes. I don't think that they have the second announced yet, but if they did, either of you, please inform me. Um, the, second, super, the second episode. The second episode, what it's going to cover. Yeah, so the second episode is actually, I think, the T'Challa and Star-Lord one, right, Brandon? Yes, as we're recording this, it's premiering tonight, so... Mm-hmm. All right, so we're all watching that. Um, I'm completely engaged. Cannot wait for more What If content. Yeah, so I think we're all in agreement with their solid start. Uh, I did want to, just before we wrap the TV segment, uh, two series that we will probably talk about at some point, but we did not get a chance to talk about this week, uh, Reservation Dogs, which is the new uh, FX series, uh, also on Hulu with uh, Taika Waititi show running about an uh, indigenous community on an Indian reservation dealing with you know problems of day-to-day life. I have heard amazing things. I cannot wait to catch up on it. Hopefully we'll talk about it at some point. Uh, also, The White Lotus, which I know that uh, Noah has been watching. I am going to get up, get caught up at least in the next week. I hope we can talk about that next show, if not the show afterwards, as well as uh, two shows that this week just had uh, pretty big milestones for their uh, Star Wars The Bad Batch, also on Disney+, Plus, which just wrapped its first season. I have been loving this. I would love to dive into it at some point, but it just wraps the first season. I'm very impressed by it. Also, uh, approaching its mid-series finale this week was uh, season two of The Owl House, which has become like my new little obsession on Disney. I love a certain part of it, and I need to dive into it as someone or I'm going to go crazy. But for all of you animation brands out there, Owl House has just wrapped that. It is going on hiatus until, I believe, December. I hope sooner. We'll see. But yeah, that is our uh, TV you know, Stream Deck recap for this week. Uh, we will come up with an appropriate name eventually. For now, we are going to dive into a new segment. Uh, Noah, can you introduce to the people what we're going to be talking about right now? Of course. So our next segment, we're actually uh, starting premiering today along with the episode, is directorial debut. Where we'll be covering uh, the very first uh, director project of a famous... I got stuck on my words. Okay. I'm going to say, okay, yes, thank you, Brandon. We are premiering our first segment today called uh, Directorial Debut. We'll be looking at the first project that comes from a list of um, directors you may or may not have heard of, and we want to be introducing to you their first start in their industry and also um, 
looking back at how their career has shaped since they first got their start in Hollywood. Today, we are focusing on She's Gotta Have It, uh, directed by Spike Lee, and it is introduced as a Spike Lee joint, as we know he makes. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll just describe the plot real quick for anyone who just doesn't quite know. Uh, this is revolving around Noah, uh, Noah Darling, played in the movie by uh, Tracy Camilla Johns. She is a graphic artist living in New York in the 1980s. Uh, she has a revolving door of love interests or a polygamous relationship, however if you want to frame the movie's relationship as. Uh, those three suitors are Jamie, played by uh, Tommy Redman Hicks, uh, Greer, played by John Canada Terrell, and Mars Blackman, played by Spike Lee himself. Uh, in the movie, you also have uh, Opal, played by Ray Noel, who is a lesbian neighbor who tries to, at certain points, get with Nola. And you also have uh, what's his name? Uh, Sonny, who is uh, Nola's jazz musician father, who is played by Spike Lee's really father, Bill Lee, who also does the music for this movie. So it all kind of ties in together. Basically, the movie revolves around kind of, you know, the day-to-day interactions of Nola and her, and her three relationships, how those kind of collide together, where Nola is going to go as a character, and where she is kind of going to see her life and her relationships going as they start to intertwine with one another. Uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time for all of us seeing this movie, right? Yes. For me, yeah. Yeah, this was the same for me. Um, I haven't watched the show. I have heard it's very good, although I know Noah has, and he will give us some context on that in a second. Um, this is interesting because, at least for me, I was very late to the Spike Lee train. I didn't know a lot of his stuff until, I want to say maybe Chirac, and I wasn't a huge fan of Chirac. Uh, but then in the last number of years, he's done, you know, Black Klansman, and he's done uh, Defy Bloods, both of which I've been a huge fan of both of those. And this is really interesting going back to, because, you know, you recognize that Spike Lee at this time is someone who is just coming out of, you know, NYU film. He's just coming out of, you know, discovering his own film talents. And it's very obvious from, you know, the black and white filter to, you know, a lot of the establishing shots to how long the film will linger on, you know, certain monologues and like that. It's very much developed like, like almost like a play. And to an extent, I think it feels theatrical to an extent. To me, it works once we get into the second half, because once you sort of see the drama sort of ensue between Nola and her three suitors, all of whom are played wonderfully, by the way, like I like the cast in this a lot, uh, especially Lee, who is really charismatic as an actor. And I wish he would you know, start doing more of his own roles eventually. I know he has in a lot of his own movies. I just wish he'd start doing it recently. And I like the way that it sort of twists and turns with that. I like how we get to examine Nola as a woman of agency and also as a very complex character. I like how we get to examine, you know, the nuances of, you know, how nice guys and, you know, jerk guys are kind of, you know, the shades of gray and everything playing into that black and white filter. And I also like Billy's score. Like, apparently he and Spike Lee had a fallout at one point, which is why he hasn't been doing a lot of his movies anymore. But in this case, I think he brings a lot of like the cool jazz inflections to it. I think it makes, you know, that area of Brooklyn feel alive. And it might have one of like my all time favorite, like romantic dance scenes in it when the film kind of shifts to a color perspective and we get like this kind of you know, romanticized Hollywood version of where, you know, Nola and Jamie's relationship can go. It doesn't totally work. I still think the first half kind of drags a little bit too much, but then once it gets going, I really do admire it to a degree. So that's kind of my general thoughts on that. I really appreciate your take, Brandon, about the fact that it feels like a play. That's something that I didn't really observe in the moment. And kind of like you, I thought it it took a little bit of time for it to be engaging because that first half for me, it doesn't really work much. I think it's because they take too much time, like focusing on the separate relationships. 
and they just feel a little disjointed from each other. But then once you see those worlds collide, then it's, that's when things get really spicy in more ways than one. And so it's just, it's just fun to see that dynamic with all the characters. And I, I, oh my gosh, the score is amazing. Cause it's like with jazz and anybody who appreciates good music will appreciate the score. So it's amazing. And I like how they used it for transitional scenes too, um, to kind of, like you said, make that, that scene feel so alive. And something that I really like one of my takeaways, you know, like I, I pretty much agree with most of what Brandon's already said. And so one of my favorite takeaways too, is that I wish that we could see more on uh, Jamie's character and on Mars's character. Cause it just feels like the two of them have this kind of chemistry alone. And I just really liked their dynamic, like in the one scene with them in the park. Um, I don't know if you'll remember specifically which scene I'm talking about, but they're just talking about a basketball game and it just, if you didn't know any better, you would think that these two guys are friends. And so I just think that that's kind of a cool dynamic to see because it's like, if they weren't seeing the same girl at the same time, maybe in a different life, they would have been friends. And I just thought that was an interesting scene to take away from it. And I, you know, I'd almost like to see jokingly, this is a kind of a joke, kind of not like some kind of like spinoff mini episode with the two of them just doing some like, like buddy shit. I don't know, like, or buddy I don't know if we could curse uh, to do um, some kind of um, hold up three, two, one. I would honestly really like to see them do some kind of like spinoff episode just for kicks, like for no apparent reason, maybe for the anniversary of when this movie came out just to see where are they now? I think that would be kind of funny to see where those relationships might've gone. And, and again, just a joke, like maybe social media fodder for a video, but I digress. That's kind of my take. Right. And like Greer just became like this washed up model. Like he had all these aspirations, like, no, no one cares about it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever end up getting your fine woman? yet? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, how are you doing with that? Uh, no, I know that, uh, no, I know that you've watched the show at some point. Uh, uh, all right, Noah. So I know that you actually had experience with the TV show, and I, I want to know your general thoughts on the movie as well. But like, how like does the TV show tie into it all? Does it improve on certain things of the film that didn't quite work, or did it or didn't improve it to you? Yeah, when we set out to watch uh, Spike Lee's uh, debut, I understood the title as "She's Got to Have It." So initially, I just went to Netflix, typed it in, saw the first picture that grabbed my attention, and hit play, uh, and was surprised to find that it was a series. Um, totally skimmed over the gear. And then uh, I was watching it and immediately I was drawn in because uh, some of Spike Lee's uh, signature moves, because of course he directed it, are like the the monologuing to the camera, breaking the fourth wall. When that was um, immediately done for Nola's character, because it does transfer from the film to the TV show, uh, immediately I was engaged. Um, like you say, Brandon, it felt very theatrical and um, I'm a thespian. I, I can appreciate like stage production. So Hearing her just speak to me, um, I was connected to the character. I was ready to see uh, what kind of adventure we were going to be going on. Uh, surprised to find out that we're actually going to be telling a story of juggling lovers. The three lovers that she has have very different personalities. And I think uh, focusing in on what makes one uh, a good pairing for her uh, is told in three different ways. And that's immediately what you get from the show. Like the very first episode is the, uh, can be taken as like a condensed version of what the first maybe like 25 or so minutes are from the film. So then after learning that we were going to watch the movie, I went and threw on the movie and it starts pretty much in the same way. We get excellent shots of 
uh, New York City, where we know Spike Lee has gone to school. And then uh, we are introduced to our main character, Nola, and immediately it's the monologue to the camera. And I was just impressed to see a film do this. I think from this time period, I wasn't uh, witnessing a lot of films like this, where it wasn't just a straight narrative where I had to kind of just follow whatever character um, I was already looking at. But this time I was being told like, this is who I am. Um, and here's the, here's the men that are involved in my life. And so I could appreciate like that take on storytelling. Uh, I think that um, Nola as a character, we're not looking at this polygamous relationship or this, um, you know, this as a lover's quarrel, like none of the, uh, maybe one of the men feels, uh, uh, I guess, jealous of the other two, but all men pretty much respect the boundaries that Nola has set for them. And I think that that was a very progressive take on relationships to be including uh, as early as Spike Lee did. This movie uh, was shot in the 80s. And I don't know, I guess from that time, I, I was expecting something that was more of, you know, berating for somebody who would openly date other men or multiple partners, but was happy to see that this was taking an approach where as long as, you know, their communication is honest and Nola was always honest. <laughs> she set the boundaries, they respected them. And if they did not she was making it clear that this is not, she's not after something with so many limitations. Like she was um, with them because she wanted to be with them. And if they thought too heavily on it, she was ready to move on. And I, I can appreciate that as a character as in a character. So the characterization, Nola, sorry, I just pleasant to see. No, I totally agree. And I, I'm glad you brought up, you know, the word partners, because like there is prominent like LGBTQ subtext in here with, uh, with Opal's character, because she is a semi-prominent supporting character. She doesn't get that much development, but for, you know, a eighties, you know, up and coming, you know, drama film, it's kind of cool to see, you know, a polygamous relationship that attracts multiple partners and to show that in, you know, for, for most of the film's context, fair and loving context, and then to kind of throw it under the bus and be like, no, like, even if you think people are, you know, complete, at, I know we kick her, even if you think people are complete jerks, essentially, they can have redeeming qualities and even people are, you know, vice versa. And I think the sort of morality that Spike brings to it, especially for, you know, for young people at that age going through this time of like, I don't know what I want, but I'm going to figure out what I want through trial and error. I think, again, it's a fascinating kind of exploration of it. It's just not always to the point where I think Lee is trying to go with it, especially in terms of, you know, making Nola relatable. I think it almost works. Like, I think it gets there in the end, but I, I think it, you know, takes its time way too much. Talk about um, the pacing of it. I get intrigued over what the series is going to look like because I see that there's two seasons available on Netflix. So I will return to it. I do want to see um, how Mars Blackman is portrayed in the TV show because it's picked up by, um, you know, originally it's Spike Lee, uh, and now it's Anthony Ramos. So uh, being a fan of Anthony Ramos and Hamilton just recently on HBO Max in The Heights, uh, I want to see more of his character and especially seeing him portray uh, Mars uh, is going to be something I think really new because I'm not familiar with him as a TV actor. So I'll have to check into that. Um, to your point earlier, Spike Lee is amazing to watch on camera. Uh, him and Nola have um, a lighthearted chemistry that I I was always attracted to, like, I, I love that um, in a relationship, whereas uh, with her other partners, um, they can be, they can seem to uh, seek power over Nola when really um, Mars is the one, uh, he doesn't like keep himself at bay by any means, but he does at least, um, he doesn't try to be, be overbearing for Nola. And I, 
I like to see Spike Lee do that. He, he's the most sly about it all. <laughs> the most sly. And I love his big, huge gold plate in Mars right across his chest. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious, too. I, I want to know the story behind that prop so badly. Um, the, the other point that I just want to bring up before I just, you know, wrap up everything and you guys can take it from there is that if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, you know, Spike Lee has had a very extensive filmography in, you know, the 30 years that he's been at work. And this is not even in his top five highest rating. Like Black Klansman has a higher tomato rating than this. And so I'm interested to know just from you guys, uh, and I don't know your degree of Spike Lee's uh, filmography as well. Where do you see this, not in just a ranking specifically, but just where do you see this in terms of good and bad in terms of his, you know, filmography since then? It, though it, it has its flaws, it's a good prequel or prelude to all of um, what's to come with Spike Lee. And especially I'm, I'm speaking from uh, someone who has experience in more of Spike Lee's recent work like Black Klansman and Defy Bloods. Um, and I, I'm not as familiar with things that were like, you know, maybe in the 90s after his debut. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's just what I think of this. Uh, no, any thoughts on that or? I can relate to any of the um, more ignorant listeners who have not tapped into a lot of Spike Lee's joints previously. Uh, She's Gotta Have It was an excellent introduction because it's actually introducing me to the works of Spike Lee. Um, He is a name that I was uh, familiar with because I'm involved in like um, the movie industry news and any any highlights that come out, knowing that The the Five Bloods was directed by him. uh, Never got around to watching it. Well, now having seen She's Gotta Have It, it was so stylistic for me in an experience that I know I'm going to go out and I'm going to make sure that I watch those other films of his just to receive that Spike Lee treatment um, that he applies to all of his storytelling. Uh, immediately engaged with his characters. Um, monologues. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Being a, being a theater kid, being a theater person. Sorry, not a kid. Uh, <laughs> I um, want to see more of those. Uh, Chadwick Boseman, I want to see him into Five Bloods. And uh, I know he has a Malcolm X movie that I'll be watching. So as far as directorial debut, um, if you're unfamiliar with the Spike Lee works, uh, whether you are or not, you know, revisiting his uh, debut film, She's Gotta Have It on Netflix, uh, will definitely get you um, engaged in the material and ready to get more. Totally. Yeah. And we're about to wrap this up, too. So just uh, real quick, uh, rating out of 10, I will go first. I will say this is easily a solid seven. I think everything it sets out to do, I think it's clearly the work of someone who will become a visionary in film field. I think someone who has a distinct vision of what they want to do. I think he has a clear eye for characters and a clear eye for where you can take artistic visual storytelling. But I certainly respect the guy. I certainly look forward to his new projects. And this is, as you mentioned, Noah, this is a very clear indicator of where to start with his work. That's a solid seven for me, too. That's hilarious that you said that. Took the words right out of my mouth, honestly. I'm sorry. No, no, it's a good thing. It, it just means that you're that good, Brandon. <laughs> uh, great characters. The acting is totally, like, recognizable for the time. Like, it definitely hits the mark for, like, what was uh, the art of acting back then. Does that make sense? I'm not sure, but I felt like I'm I good, could yeah. Maybe it's, it's a just, style. It's a style. It's in the way they spoke. Um, or the way everything that the art is captured, of course. And so, respecting that, I would give this, um, I'd probably give this, like, a an eight. I would elevate it because had I had I seen it earlier, I think I would I would have loved to see uh, this representation, these portrayals, and uh, how close to returning to the word, how close to a theater experience it actually was. And everybody, thank you for listening. That wraps up our very first episode of Plot Devices here with the Popcorn Club. Myself, Brandon, and Sam. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed listening to all of our industry news. Uh, 
excited for any weekend releases that you're going to be checking out. Uh, please let us know if you have particular movies that you're excited about releasing because we are always working on reviews for the odyssey you can check mine for some of the titles mentioned today i have reviewed free guy sam do you want to mention the review you covered yeah i covered green knight and i am trying to remember if i covered any others we mentioned well i do know that brandon your review for the suicide squad is available Yes, uh, Suicide Squad review out right now, and also uh, Nine Days review is coming out this week. All right, excellent. And then uh, tune in next week. We'll be talking about, again, movie news, new releases, have some reviews ready for discussion. What is going on on those streaming platforms, HBO Max, and you name it, we'll be covering the new material. And uh, we'll have a new segment for you to have fun with us. Thank you.